0: Welcome to the Making Sense podcast. This is Sam Harris. Apologies for the voice. I am just uh, getting over COVID, second time having COVID. And uh, this was not as bad as the last time, but it has kept me off the mic until this moment. I'll try to keep this short. First, a brief announcement podcast subscribers can now share full length episodes of the podcast by going to samharris.org and logging in and clicking the relevant link. And you can even share these links on social media. So that's the way around the paywall whenever you want to share a specific podcast with other people. As always, subscribing to the podcast at samharris.org is the way to support it. And as with the Waking Up app, if you can't afford a subscription, you can always send an email, in this case to support at samharris.org, and we'll give you one for free. Okay. Today I'm speaking with Brett Stevens. Brett is currently a columnist for the New York Times, which he came to after a long career at the Wall Street Journal. Before that, he was the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, and he's had a long-standing career in journalism, reporting from all over the world and interviewing scores of world leaders. He's also the author of the book America in Retreat, the new isolationism and the coming global disorder. He is the recipient of numerous awards and distinctions, including two honorary doctorates and a Pulitzer Prize. Anyway, Brett and I speak about the current state of the Republican Party. Brett was among the few courageous, never Trump Republicans, and he wound up leaving the Wall Street Journal over differences of opinion there. We discuss the strange change that has occurred in the Republican Party. We talk about the attitudes toward Putin influence of Tucker Carlson, the war in Ukraine, the failures of elites and experts, the tension between concerns about misinformation and free speech, the Hunter Biden laptop, the 2024 presidential election, how Trump captured the Republican Party, the criminal charges against him, and the future of conservatism in America. And I bring you Brett Stevens. I am here with Brett Stevens. Brett, thanks for joining me.
1: Good to be on your show, Sam.
0: So um, you recently wrote a an op-ed in, or your column in the New York Times, uh, about your recent trip to Ukraine, which is the proximate cause of this conversation. I want to get into that, but I think it probably will allow us to talk more broadly about what's happened to us politically, in the U.S. and just what's happened to the to the Republican Party and and how our conversation about Ukraine and other topics has grown so weird. But before we jump into that, perhaps you can summarize your background as a journalist and a writer.
1: Oh, uh, let's see. Born in New York City, raised in Mexico City, which is a story unto itself. Uh, University of Chicago. For college, London School of Economics started working at the Wall Street Journal in the late 1990s. Worked for them in uh, New York and Brussels before leaving for the Jerusalem Post, where I was the editor in chief during the Second Intifada uh, about 20 21 years ago. Returned to the Wall Street Journal uh, as a foreign affairs columnist and a member of the editorial board, and was verily very happily ensconced there until. Donald Trump, and pretty much left the journal over, I guess, what you call creative differences about mm. our view of the former, hopefully not future president, and um, came to the New York Times, where I've been for a little over six years as, um, as an op-ed columnist. I write a lot about foreign policy and uh, try to visit the places I write about. And so Ukraine was uh, my most recent foreign travel.
0: Mm. How old were you when you left Mexico?
1: Well, I left to boarding school when I was 14, but I didn't really leave the country. It was still my home uh, until I was practically in college, so 17 or 18.
0: Mm, interesting. I guess I've heard you talk about that before, but I'm not sure how widely known that backstory is. It's an interesting counterpoint to um, some ways in which you probably get maligned as a person uh, associated with the, the center-right side of, of politics.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I was uh, I was chatting with a colleague of mine. I won't say who, but a colleague of mine, well-known columnist at the Times, and he said, you know, if I had to place you politically, I'd say you're center-left. I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, t- I tend to think of myself as center-center-right, although the last five or six years, I've probably shifted a little bit to the left. It's not so much a shift. It's It's that the Republican Party has moved so far to the right for me that I feel just deeply alienated from it.
0: Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that because, um, needless to say, I understand. What what, and what did you study in school?
1: I studied really. I studied political philosophy. There was a special name to the program, but that was basically what Mm -hmm. I was mainly interested in.
0: So, I guess let's start with Ukraine as the jumping-off point. You know, I've been. Fairly mystified, I guess, previous to the the recent war in Ukraine, I, I, I was mystified by the fact that Putin and similar figures became darlings of I hesitate to say the right because I guess I I don't totally understand how right and left work now as polls politically because so many things are now upside down. But it used to be that the Republican Party was the party that imagined it had won the Cold War, and you would you would expect Putin would be among the last people to be celebrated among Republicans, and yet he was, and then, you know, his invasion of Ukraine is often talked about among Republicans as something that we provoked, because, you know, it's, it's only re- sensible for a man like Putin to worry about NATO expansion, and even to think that Ukraine isn't necessarily a country and really should be reabsorbed by mother russia before we talk about your trip itself what do you make about what has happened to the republican party with respect to topics like putin and america's influence abroad i mean they just they've almost swapped positions with democrats when you when you're talking about the prospect of, of america projecting any sort of power to maintain a, a rules-based international order.
1: So it's one of the great weirdnesses of our day. I mean, I, I wrote my first anti-Putin editorial for the Wall Street Journal's editorial page at the very end of 1999, and would get into arguments with figures on the left, particularly writers for places like The Nation, on the threat that Putin constituted I remember uh, writing a column in 2006 titled "Russia's Becoming an Enemy of the United States," and all of the flack I took from that column was was from from the left. And the switch really came about with the uh, ascendancy of of Donald Trump. I think we should be careful because there are still a lot of Republicans, you know, the Mitch McConnell's right. of the world, who are just as anti-Putin as. Jake Sullivan and yeah. Tony Blinken and other other Democrats but but what I think has happened is in keeping with the fact that the Republican Party which starting with Eisenhower and maybe even before Arthur Vandenberg and his his alliance with with Harry Truman the Republican Party went from being a kind of a conservative internationalist party to reverting to what it had been in the pre-war, pre-World War II years, an isolationist or what I I call truculent nationalism. And to the extent that in Vladimir Putin, they see a model of truculent nationalism, a lot of Republicans, certainly of the Tucker Carlson stripe, if if Mm. that's the right name for it, find a lot to admire. They like the xenophobia, they like the strongman ethic, They have this perception that Putin is anti-Muslim. I think that that plays a part of it. There's a kind of cult of machismo. I mean, I I don't want to get too deep into the psychosexual aspect of it, but it's clearly, I think, an element there. And there is a sort of old-fashioned quasi-isolationism, which is let Putin do whatever he wants in, in Ukraine. So that we can do whatever we want in Mexico, it's kind of back to the spheres of influence mentality Mm -hmm. of the 19th century.
0: You you mentioned Tucker. What what has his role been here? Um, I guess the the thing that you know I I tend not to pay much attention to Tucker, but when his texts were leaked in the Dominion lawsuit, and we saw that behind the scenes he actually reviled Trump. The thing that that I took away from that, which I'm still Astonished by is that this is someone who has more or less shilled for Trump for years and and cultivated a an audience that's squarely in Trump's personality cult. Yet now we now it's divulged that he considers Trump a demonic figure who he you know hates with every fiber in his being or some such phrasing and. Yet his audience doesn't seem to care about the hypocrisy and you know, total lack of integrity. As someone who whose brand seems to be integrity, I'll tell you the truth that no one wants to tell you because I, I'm not owned by anybody. What do you make of the fact that his audience doesn't care that the you know the curtain has been pulled back and he's a liar of you know a, a very Trumpian sort?
1: I mean, I knew Tucker slightly when he was. I was at the Wall Street Journal, and he was at Fox, and we were literally under the same roof, under News Corp. And my impression of him was, I remember saying this the first time I I I met him. I I said this to my wife or someone. I said, I've never met anyone as cynical as this guy. That you know, his his principal aim is sort of to advance his brand, and whether that means coming across as a kind of Bow-tied William F. Buckley wannabe or a you know feverish populist, angry everyman—he'll he'll do whatever it is to advance the cause of of himself, irrespective of a point of view. But the 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 isolationism, the nationalism—that's been there for a, I think a fairly long time. I know for a fact that it it predates Trump because I once was in a argument about Afghanistan mm. with him look the part of being a cynic and i think part of the appeal of cynics is when you're basically saying it's all a lie it's all it's all bullshit let's all be in on the fact that everything is a form of manipulation it's weirdly easy to win converts because you're sort of inviting your audience into a the pretense of a secret knowledge that everything is for show there's 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 nothing really true and the only thing that exists is power and your need to advance your power at the expense of of the other side the other the other team and i think that's really what what Tucker is is peddling which is why he's such a sort of uniquely toxic ideologue for the maga movement i mean that he hates trump that's true that he adores trump that's true as well it just depends on on what serves his particular interest at, at any time and Trump frankly kind of pedals the same point of view. Mm. You know, when I was in college, the Cold War had just ended. I I entered college the same year the Soviet Union collapsed. And for a variety of reasons, I I developed this interest in the mid-20th century literature by anti-totalitarian writers, people like Hannah Arendt Hmm. And Miloj and a bunch of other figures, both from behind the Iron Curtain, Václav Havel and and other uh, in the free world, who really thought deeply about the the totalitarian phenomenon. And what has struck me profoundly in the last five or six years is how the psychological categories, the the desire to to obey, the desire to be, the the willingness to be misled, so long as you're you're made to feel as if you belong, that those methods by which totalitarian or post-totalitarian societies were able to rule and to stay in power, that those in effect recall, or, or well, the the Trump playbook recalls those methods mm-hmm. to, to an eerie degree, and it's really worth rereading those books.
0: Yeah, well, I, I want to get back to Trump, and and perhaps we can talk about his current legal troubles and whether the left is getting too confident that he will actually pay for anything that he has done uh, or attempted to do. But um, before we pivot back to that, let's talk about Ukraine. Can you just give me the, the moral and geopolitical case for our support of Ukraine?
1: I think in Ukraine, our moral interests almost wholly coincide with our, our national interest. We have a moral interest in defending a victimized state against a authoritarian bully who has no regard for any ordinary norms of law or laws of of warfare or human rights. And we also have a vital national interest in showing that we are prepared to defend embattled democracies in the face of this kind of aggression not just for the sake of Ukrainians, but for the sake of whoever it is that autocrats like Putin, but also Xi and maybe Khamenei in in Iran want, want to attack next. So Xi is looking very carefully at the outcome of Ukraine to determine whether he's going to strike Taiwan. And if Putin is allowed to win, or at least to keep his gains and freeze the conflict, we will be in greater danger, not less, which is why doing the right thing by the Ukrainians is also doing the right thing by the American people.
0: What do you make of the claim that uh, we quite irresponsibly provoked Putin? I mean, it was our own failures of diplomacy, our own provocative dangling of the prospect of Ukraine's membership in NATO. We basically gave Putin no choice but to invade.
1: There was no prospect of Ukrainian membership in NATO, none whatever, and Putin perfectly knew it perfectly well. The subject was raised in two thousand and eight, and then buried afterwards. Even now, it's there's really not much of a prospect of at least near-term Ukrainian membership Mm. in NATO. So I think, I guess that's the Mearsheimer hypothesis. I think that's simply false. And the truth is, I mean, you can go back to the nineteen nineties and say that we provoked Russia when we decided to invite the baltic states and poland and some of the old warsaw pact members into the nato allow- alliance but the truth is these countries wanted to be in to the nato alliance because they they knew very well looking at their own history that if they didn't have the guarantee of of western security of american security russia would reemerge as a great power and russia's history as a great power has been one of constant aggression not just under the communists, but going back to the czarist era, Poland disappeared for a couple of hundred years. So NATO has and has always been a defensive alliance. I think Putin understands this perfectly well. And and the idea that we're somehow to blame for the fact that Russia has launched one of the most violent and unnecessary wars in history is is just perverse.
0: Mm. So what was your experience in Ukraine?
1: Well, I don't want to make too much of it because I was there for four days. And, you know, some of my colleagues at the New York Times have been there for months, if not years. And so, you know, there's a limit to how much you can glean on on what's really a pretty short visit. But nonetheless, you, you learn a few things. Number one, no planes fly to Ukraine, no ships sail to Ukraine. It's, in that sense, it's one of the most isolated states in the world. We took a nine-hour train from the Polish border to Kiev. Number two, Kyiv is thriving. It was, it was stunning to me that a city where so many people have been, so many siblings are at war, is insisting that life should be led as close to normal as possible. I, I think I said this in a comment, that Ukrainians are living their lives as if there is no war, and they are fighting the war as if there is no everyday life. It's a very striking fact to be awakened Multiple times in the middle of the night, because Russian drones or cruise missiles are heading your way, and Mark Hamill's voice comes up on a something called the Air Alert app, and mm. basically tells you to to seek safety and and don't be so don't be so cocky as to think you're invulnerable. And I learned that Ukrainians are really determined to win the war. They are not eager to look for a settlement because they know that if they do, Russia will regroup. Bide its time, maybe it might be five years, maybe it might be fifteen, but we'll strike again. So they're really determined to win this thing.
0: And by win you mean reclaim all the territory that has was previously lost? That's what
1: Ukrainians the Ukrainians I met with all insisted to the last person that there is that they feel they are every bit as eager to reclaim Crimea, which was seized back in twenty fourteen, as they are to reclaim the, the land that the Russians took since since 2022. I think it's ultimately going to be their decision based on how the offensive or their counteroffensive goes to figure out what it is that they can live with. And I can imagine that if Ukrainians were told, look, we're going to invite you into NATO, or we're going to give you other forms of very good security guarantees, but Crimea may be a bridge too far, they might reassess that. But from for, for my encounters with the Ukrainians, they were Unanimously, unanimous in 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 insisting that they want to reclaim their full sovereignty.
0: Do we feel that we have good mortality and casualty data on on both sides of the war? I mean, do we? Uh, it's been a while since I've actually heard clear figures.
1: Yeah, no, we don't. The Economist had a had an estimate of Russian fatalities. This was about a month or two ago. Which estimated about forty to fifty thousand Russian fatalities, which means a huge casualty rate because usually casualties, you know, the wounded come in multiples of the mm. of the fatality of the fatality rate. But that was based on sort of second tier data because the Russians are not releasing figures and the Ukrainians don't release figures either. I I, I suspect the Ukrainian figures are much lower because Ukrainians haven't like the Russians been throwing convicts like cannon fodder into battle and not really caring whether they, they return alive or not.
0: Mm. What do you make of the prospects of the Ukrainians now in actually winning the war or, or winning it to the point where the tide has turned in a way that, that really puts Russia on the back foot? You know, this war has really mocked concepts
1: of military expertise you know, when Russia first invaded, I think the CIA was estimating 96 hours or something like that until mm-hmm. Kyiv fell. Yeah. Then there was a period of cocksureness where we thought that the Russians would surely fold completely because of their early reversals. We've been surprised in the last few months since the counteroffensive began that the Russians are not capitulating as we thought they would, that there's more morale in Russian lines than. Had been reported, so all of that is a long way of saying that I'd be a fool to hazard a guess. You could see a situation in which the first, the early weeks of the counteroffensive, are a slog, and then Ukrainians manage to break through. But look, we're we're back to fighting World War One, in which you know it's trench warfare, there are artillery battles, it's very hard to get across no man's land so the the Ukrainians have a, a huge task ahead of them, and it wouldn't surprise me if they make very little progress
0: so uh, yeah, your um point about the the failure of expertise here is it has more global significance because it, it really seems to be the heart of the Trumpian isolationist conspiracist core uh, over there, which is which again has turned everything upside down or many things upside down, but that it it has this. Kernel of truth to it, which is that you know, on many many fronts, our our experts, our elites, ha- have embarrassed themselves in their claims to certainty. I mean, you know, the, if you look at the public health messaging during COVID and the and the backlash against it, I mean, part of that was uh, there's a a fundamental misunderstanding uh, about how science works and a failure to recognize that COVID was a moving target, and of course, we're going to Keep having to revise our opinion of what's actually happening. You know, do vaccines prevent transmission? We hope so. It looks like they don't really do a very good job of that. But all of that gets scored as just the utter embarrassment of the so-called experts. And what replaces a trust in institutions and experts is a sense that basically everyone's opinion is the equivalent of any other person's opinion, and we should all just do our own research about covid about mrna about ukraine about anything and you can't trust these deep state rent seekers and so the punchline that many have drawn certainly your right of center is that what we need is a proper reboot which is by definition isolationist in a way where do we ever get it into our head that we need to be the world's cop how is it that ukraine which most americans can't find on a map is considered to be a vital national interest. We apparently have billions to spare for Ukrainian munitions, but we can't figure out how to get the homeless fentanyl addicts off the streets of our mm-hmm. most important cities. How do you respond to that? That eruption of, kind of populist discontent with international norms, with with institutions, with experts, etc.
1: Well, you're you're raising two somewhat distinct points. One of the, I think, real problems we have in the country is not only that experts failed, but experts refuse to acknowledge, or too many experts refuse to acknowledge that they failed. And so the distrust that I think is pervasive in the United States, I mean, you look at one institution after another and levels of trust have just plummeted, that distrust is well-founded, or at least it's not completely crazy. Not only did did experts often insist on solutions that turned out to be inadequate, but they did so with consummate arrogance. Hmm. And and I think that has they have not helped they have not helped their their case. And by the way, I mean this is not just in terms of public health, although that's what you were talking about. It's in one one institution and one area after another where the expert point of view fell short. Now, the second point, which is the idea of like, we just need a reboot in in foreign policy. I mean, when people say, well, most Americans couldn't find Ukraine on a map, that to me suggests that Americans ought to spend more time looking at maps, because Ukraine is not some obscure little country, six degrees to the left of nowhere. It's it's at the very heart of Europe. And the idea that we have spent all of this money on Ukraine that could be, could have been better spent on treating fentanyl or shoring up the border is it's just a failure of mathematics. I mean the amount of money we've spent on Ukraine as a percentage of our total budget of our total resources, it's a fraction of a of a single single percentage. I mean 50 billion sounds like a lot of money. And then you say, well, what's the budget of the United States? It's it's what, five, five or six trillion. So you're not talking about devoting an outsized share of, of resources. But the truth is that countries have to be able to do many things at once. And so, what we're devoting to Ukraine is important because we want to maintain a world in which dictators aren't rampaging everywhere and getting stronger and more confident. We want to avoid a situation like the 1930s, where the dictators combine and we have to face a genuine global crisis. We want a situation where it's Ukrainians fighting for their freedom, not Americans fighting for Ukrainians. Hmm. And then when it comes to other issues, whether it's the fentanyl crisis or the the immigration crisis, those are those are separate issues that you have to consider sort of separately and 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 rationally. I don't think that if we pulled up stakes at Ukraine tomorrow, we would be an inch closer to addressing the tragedies going on in places like Portland or San Francisco or or, or the the migration crisis from from uh, all the way to manhattan
0: hmm. so uh, let's linger for a moment on the point you made about the failure of of experts and institutions because I, I i fully agree and you know some of this you know, rather a lot of it had to do with the way kind of woke identitarian nonsense was Vitiating many of these institutions, uh, you know, the, the your own included. No comment. Yeah. So the, the and the you know I, I I'm hopeful that the pendulum has begun to swing back to something more sane. There, I don't know if you uh, have a sense of where the culture is is moving, but um, I'm just wondering what you think institutions and experts should have done and or you know should do now. I mean do we need something like a a truth and reconciliation commission around expert opinion or on what score are apologies warranted and and what form would you imagine them taking and do you have any examples of places that seem really egregious that do cry out for some kind of reckoning
1: Well I mean the the first thought is the closure of schools across America during the COVID during the, the early phases of the COVID pandemic which wrecked terrible re- t- terrible damage on young children that is going to be year going to take years to to repair and i think the problem is that we during the covid crisis we conflated the interests of public health with the public interest that that's mm. to say that public health is a part of the public interest but it's not the sole part of the public interest right i mean take another example we could save tens of thousands of lives every day or every year if we had a national speed limit of 30 miles an hour, okay? We could. Just overnight, if we enforced a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit, tens of thousands of lives would be saved. So we would be doing something for the sake of public health, but we would be doing it at a cost that I don't think anyone listening to, to this podcast for a moment would accept. Why? Because we recognize that the public interest Involves a series of trade offs between competing goods. One of them is public health, but another one is the interest of children getting to school and getting to school in front of an actual teacher, not in front of a screen, and socializing and seeing a person's mouth move and smile and frown and whatever. And the apology that's owed by public health officials is to say we bigfooted other areas because we thought that the only thing that mattered in a pandemic was saving people from COVID. Now, that's not to say it doesn't matter. Of course it matters, right? But it it would have indicated, it would have shown some humility and some sense that they should have kept to their own lanes by saying, we advise about a public health issue, but we understand and recognize that there were other competing interests. And that goes, by the way, for all kinds of things in which you can think of people who have expertise in a given subject, presuming, because they have expertise in a given subject, that they're experts in every related subject. I mean, I'll give you another example, and this will probably get me into trouble, right? Say you are a climatologist, and you know that the Earth is warming, and that this is going to have major downstream effects for humanity, okay? that does not necessarily make you an expert in economics. It doesn't make you an expert in politics. It doesn't make you an expert in a number of related fields, all of which need to be brought into a large conversation about the long-term effects of climate change. You can say those effects are real, that they're serious, it's coming, we have to deal with it. But it might mean that the right answer isn't completely upending the current energy economy for the sake of technologies that aren't yet mature right and, and so so i just want to be be clear i'm not i'm not saying the views of climatologists aren't important they are important what i am saying is that if you're looking at a a problem that is as large and as vexing as climate change right it can't simply be the climate experts who are telling us telling the rest of the public what to do there has to be some weighing of competing interests. And you can think of many other fields where people who are experts in one subject have tried to impose themselves on areas where their expertise is much more limited.
0: Yeah, well, I think the concept of trade-offs is is an important one because there's so many situations where we imagine there is just one right solution without acknowledging that you know, whatever the best, you know, satisfying solution is, it will represent a trade-off, and, and you know, if you focus on the the, the other half of that trade-off, it, it can seem scarcely tolerable. You're often picking between the least bad among many bad avenues. But I'm still struck by, I mean, there's, it seems to me there were an are a number of variables in play that make public messaging about anything, public health, foreign policy, you know, any major public concern somewhat fraught. And, and you know, one is there's a kind of paternalistic slash pragmatic impulse that you can see arising where your officials, experts recognize that they are messaging into a kind of circus of misinformation and half truths and lies and grifting conspiracy theorizing and you know and, and it, this was especially bad when Trump was president and you, you so you have a you know have a president who's saying things like you know we have 15 cases and we're not going to have any more and it's, then it's going to turn to a cold right after that so figuring out how to talk to people in, in a way that leads to the best public health outcomes, to speak narrowly of COVID now, it's not a goal that is necessarily achieved by being as rigorously and comprehensively honest, you know, just throughout the process, right? You could see public health officials essentially talking to children, right, and just saying, listen, we know you're all a bunch of conspiracy adult maniacs we're going to try to dumb this down to a point where you're just, you know, most people most of the time are not going to screw this up. So, yeah, get the vaccine. You're being a good citizen by getting the vaccine. It will reduce transmission. It's safe. Now, we know that if you double-click on any one of those claims, it's a far more nuanced conversation, and there's a risk-benefit calculation to be talked about with any vaccine, but it's much more of a political than it is a scientific. Challenge to communicate about a, a pandemic, and it was made especially difficult given how shattered our politics has become by the information siloing allowed by social media. I find much that that, that happened during COVID as galling as as you do, and, and you know even as galling as many many MAGA people found it. But there is this problem of just how do you Knowing that every scientifically scrupulous nuance is going to be weaponized, as you see, they don't know anything. How do you talk to Trumpistan?
1: That's a great question, and and the answer is who knows. But I think we would have been better served if public health officials from the get go had said, had continuously emphasized what they don't know, the limits of their certainty. There was an element there which was we, we, we better make this real simple and clear because people are too stupid to digest complex information and information that has uh, large gaps in it. So maybe, and I don't know if this would have worked, but maybe if you had had our leading public health officials saying from the beginning, we think this vaccine is safe and on balance we think it's a good idea for you to take it. Is it going to provide perfect immunity? Early study suggests that it will really protect you, but we could be wrong and we know that viruses tend to mutate, so we don't know what it's going to do the next round. Are there risks associated with it? There are risks associated with every medicine. On balance, we're going to take it and we think you should you should too. Just I mean something less than that kind of censorious we know best you must do as we say approach that was that was the approach of of the public health officials and certainly the Biden administration in its in its early days then uh, that might have been more persuasive than than what the kind of you must do this mentality because people don't like necessarily being told to inject themselves with relatively Novel medicines. In fact, up until ten years ago, you you know, we we began this conversation by talking about inversions. But up until ten or twenty years ago, it was typically the left that insisted on very, very extensive testing of all new drugs because we didn't want another thalidomide, right? Mm. We didn't want we didn't want another medicine that seemed to promise a cure and then had knock-on effects, five or ten unforeseen consequences that could be devastating. Even if only to a relatively small fraction of the people who took the medication, so it was it was the left that talked a lot about the precautionary principle. In fact, back twenty years ago, all of the kind of anti-vax woo-wooism seemed to me to be coming from kind of California lefties and people who believed yeah. in herbal solutions instead of antibiotics, and then that again kind of flipped completely in the last. Five or ten years, maybe not completely, because there's RFK Jr., but it flipped substantially.
0: Yeah, well, it, it's he's kind of the the fulcrum or you know, one fulcrum of the the flipping because he obviously has garnered a, a lot of support from Trump's cult in a way. I mean, you know, just direct funding and you know the same people who are open-minded about Trump are very open-minded about RFK Jr. It seems. What's your, you know, I had yeah. the
1: weirdest experience which is, you know, I mean, I just sort of took RFK Jr from the get-go to be ridiculous and a complete crank. And then a friend of mine, very intelligent person of centrist democratic views, or at least that's how I had known mm-hmm. her, confessed to me that she was thinking this was before the anti-semitic stuff. So maybe th- something has changed, but confessed to me that she was seriously thinking about voting for him in the primary. So I don't think his appeal should be underestimated. I mean, I was I was sort of stunned. I was like, the guy's a crank. I mean, give me a break. But what she found she was responding to, I think, were two things. She didn't like the way RFK Jr. was sort of being maligned and censored and derided. She liked what she's, thought was sort of his forthright belief in free speech and open debate, which I think he's very cleverly playing up. Mm. And, you know, she'd always been slightly on the more homeopathic side of the medicine, you know, like in a kind of an everyday world, not like she wasn't vaccinating her kids or anything of the sort, but just believed that we're an over-medicated society. And so there is a she represents, I mean, this is, this is an anecdote of one, so I don't want to make too much of it. But I remember thinking after she told me this, I said, geez, you know, if someone as sane and bright and, you know, if I may say normal, is responding to RFK's message that way, then maybe the base of his support is much wider than, than I suspect.
0: People who wind up supporting RFK Jr. and and similarly fringe and, and crankish voices, in my view, are often led there by the heuristic that it's, yeah, whenever you're in the business of, of trying to demonize someone to the point of silencing them, whenever you're deplatforming someone, whenever you're saying you're not going to platform someone, even if, even just using this term platforming, you seem like you have something to hide, right? You're you're, you're, just, yeah. you're you're afraid of conversation, right? And we have this basic assumption that sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? So if there's, if he's wrong about anything material, that will be exposed if you just talk to him, right? So why not talk to him? Why not just put him on the Joe Rogan podcast for four hours and let him roll? You know, and all these people complaining about that, they seem scared of something and they, they claim it's misinformation, but it's much easier to see them as shills for the establishment who are ruled by bad incentives and are captured by the ad dollars of the pharmaceutical industry. And they're trying to prop up this old world that has been fully discredited by recent stress tests. If you're scared of RFK Jr., you know, you're you are untrustworthy. I, I want to hear him now. And that, that extends all the way to somebody like Alex Jones, right? He, he's just, you know, why wouldn't you talk to Alex Jones? You know, he might be right that the certain frogs are becoming gay and, and maybe that has implications for what's happening to humans. And that, But this idea that we don't have a misinformation problem, we merely have a stifling of free expression problem, is profoundly naive when you look at this apparatus we've built, this kind of hallucination machine that is just Algorithmically boosting nonsense and divisive lies, and people obviously can't navigate it on their own. I mean, the the people are are, people believe the impossible uh, in the wake of all this, and you know, it it really is showing the
1: um, look. People are going to believe and have believed at any given time, including long before Twitter and Facebook could turbocharge misinformation or disinformation people have believed all kinds of crap that's just in the nature of a free society i mean you can go back at any point in history and find people fully subscribed to preposterous conspiracy theories whether it was you know who killed jfk i grew up with that you know answer lee harvey oswald although i'm sure someone listening to this podcast is going to well, tear R- that rfk out.
0: his uh, nephew begs to differ so well i mean
1: yeah. <laughs> The John Birch Society, I mean, just just go back in history and you will find a tremendous amount of misinformation uh, circulating and often commonly believed. And that is in the nature of a free society that a lot of falsehood flourishes, proliferates, sinks into people's consciousness. There's a limit, uh, and I think a very sharp limit, on A, how much of that can be stripped out, you know, I might say that, by the way, certain religious dogmas strike me as a bunch of ridiculous misinformation, but I'll, I'll get myself into trouble mm. if I move further down that you, path. You'll, you'll get too. no argument here. <laughs> I, I know that, yeah. but uh, it's sort of to, to, to one side of my, my, my point here. Yeah. But what I worry about is that when you try to suppress it and you try to use powerful tools like the Twitter censors or the Facebook censors or government sending messages to social media companies to to shut down certain veins of opinion that the real effect of those acts of half-assed censorship is to actually turbocharge the misinformation not to dispel it right because right. it adds to it adds a veneer of kind of a persecution or even martyrdom to those who are perhaps misinforming people right because they think not only am I am I tr- just being persecuted for, you know, not only, I'm, I'm trying to speak my mind, and I'm being persecuted for it, and other people respond to this. I suspect that Alex Jones's profile, and I mean, he's one of the most detestable individuals in American life today, but I, 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 I suspect that his profile was, if anything, kind of elevated by the attention that was given to what he has to say. You know, I've Zero sympathy for the guy. I think he's revolting and evil, particularly for what he said about the the murders in in uh, Sandy Hook. But we do a lot those of us who are in the business of trying to be to offer good information or at least a sound and well-based analysis, don't do ourselves or our cause any favors when we're trying to shut other voices down because we declare that they're beyond the pale and anything they have to say is you know, not, not just wrong, but evil. Mm. So in the in the ecology of a free society, I mean, I think the ecological metaphor is a good one. Like, if you want a healthy ecology, you're going to have to accept that there are going to be mosquitoes and and ticks and termites and all kinds of creepy crawly things that in and of themselves are not very attractive, but perform a kind of function in the overall well-being of a given truth ecosystem. And part of, this is maybe getting a little into the weeds, but, you know, in the ecology of truth, you actually have to understand and be acquainted with what is false, right? Like, you, 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 you cannot understand truth in the absence of its opposite. So efforts to get rid of what's called misinformation or what might be misinformation aren't, in fact, serving the ultimate cause of truth, if that's what you want to call it, because It has to be present in order for us to understand what is truer than not.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, the the only caveat I would add here is that when you're talking about social media in particular, it's not really a question of platforming or not necessarily. It's just the question of of what the algorithm does to boost misinformation and, and outrage preferentially, right? So it's the signal boost that is the unique feature here and which is genuinely new. And if we—that's
1: no, that's a fair point. That's a perfectly yeah. logical, fair point. Yeah. And you can,
0: and you have to, you know, to do nothing is still an editorial decision, right? Like you, 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 have to tune the algorithm one way or the other. And if you're going to flatten everything, well, then flatten it. If you're going to try to boost better information, well, that's its own choice. But if you, if you've consciously created an algorithm that you can now see is boosting divisive lies faster than anything else, and you're maintaining it because your business model. Uh, you know, depends on you doing so, well, then you've, you know, you've built an outrage machine, and that's the, the status quo that I think you know, many of that, us are worried that's about. That's
1: true. I mean, I guess there are, two, there are two points that need to be considered, and I, I fully accept what you said. Number one is, are you sure when you are trying to root out misinformation that you are, in fact, rooting out misinformation? And, and the example of that that comes to mind is Facebook's ban on any mention of the Wuhan yeah. Virology Institute as the as a potential source for for the pandemic where they they had effectively banned it until you know until it turned out it was actually a perfectly well-grounded a, a well-grounded hypothesis. So question number 1 is, you know, do you trust the gatekeepers when it comes to deciding what is good information versus what's bad information? I think that's a that's a that's a you know, a very important consideration. The second thing is, did Trump become more potent or less potent after he was banned by Twitter? Judging by how he's doing at the polls, after um, you know a three-year ban, uh, more potent. Now, I don't know if there's a causation there, but the extent to which the extent to which his efforts to deplatform him have backfired is 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 another issue. To I think. That's that's worth considering. I don't have a great answer, mm. but my 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 general guess is that when you try to deplatform prominent people, you're giving them a patina of victimization, which they really, which which benefits them in ways that those who have deplatformed them never intended.
0: Mm. Here's a a case study we, you, we could analyze, which actually you, it's a, you could do a bit of a postmortem on. My still not completely formed opinion of the Hunter Biden laptop yeah. because it, it could it really has all of these issues in miniature. So tell me what, if anything, is wrong with this. I mean, many people are confused about what I thought or what I think and what I thought at the time because of some uh, misleading clips that uh, spread on social media. But so at the, at the time, and I still uh, my my position really hasn't changed here. I thought it was a genuinely difficult call journalistically, uh, whether to pay attention to the laptop 10 days before the election, given what had happened in 2016 when Comey reopened the, the, you know, the mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton e- email case, and we knew what, that, that, you know, though her candidacy might have failed for other reasons, it, we knew that that was the, the coup de grace with respect to, what, you know, immediately, hour by hour, what happened to the polls. Uh, and we, and for obvious reasons, anyone who was, was worried about Trump getting a second term, uh, him being a sitting president who would not commit to a peaceful transfer of power, the idea that we had to be beholden to Rudy Giuliani's timetable and take the bait 10 days before the election and and start putting front page articles about the Hunter Biden laptop uh, on the cover of your newspaper, that just seemed idiotic. And so I I, I thought, Journalistically, it would have been both prudent and defensible to say, listen, whatever's true in this laptop is going to be true two weeks from now. We're gonna slow roll our consideration of this. Knowing that this was dropped on us as an October surprise, set to detonate with just enough time to get it to derail the campaign, but not enough time to, to fully vet all this information and figure out you know what's Russian disinformation and if anything and what isn't there's every reason to, to worry that this could be russian disinformation and so we're just not we're just going to wait until after the election to really do a deep dive on this so journalistically that seemed a plausible response to me and a defensible one although admittedly a still somewhat depressing one you know my my bias being toward actually digging in and figuring out what's true and then the additional steps that, like, that social media took, you know, like Twitter actually blocking the New York Post's account once they released an article on the topic that seemed much more heavy-handed and harder to defend, and I think you know, it did actually have the, the sort of the Streisand effect that, that you just referenced a moment ago that it really brought more attention to it. But it was also just less defensible, in my view. And now, you know, fast forward to the present moment. I still, you know, all this time, given that, that Trump has. I mean, my, my feeling was at the time and it is now, I don't care what's in that laptop because I know in advance that even if it reveals some degree of corruption on the part of President Biden, it's going to pale in comparison to the corruption I know is true of Trump and his family. And the truth is, that corruption isn't even as troublesome as, as many of the other things that, that I despising Trump and, and the prospect of him getting a second term. So I can just say that I actually, as long as Trump is a candidate, I don't really care what's on that laptop, as odious as it might be. And I, and I do worry that there's a lot there that we that could, in a perfect world, discredit Biden's candidacy. But it's, um, I just don't care as long as Trump is running. And so I'm just wondering how you view that response. Yeah,
1: I guess I disagree. The standard I I would apply, I would, first of all, I don't think it's the business of those of us in the journalistic profession, certainly on the news side, not the opinion side, to try to tip the scales by withholding stories that we would otherwise consider legitimate. And, And by legitimate, what I mean is, let's imagine that it wasn't the Hunter Biden laptop, it was the Donald Trump Jr. laptop. There's no, no he, question it would a had, different response. It would have gotten a very different response and say the Donald Trump Jr. laptop contained all kinds of alarming information about his business deals with uh, foreign actors, hints of corruption, all the stuff that turned out to be on the Hunter Biden laptop, the treatment should be the same. Once, once editors came to a determination that this was they had a good reason good reason to believe that what was on this laptop was was true or at least reportable, even if there were some lingering doubts, they should have reported it.
0: You think they should have just followed the timing of Giuliani, knowing that 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 he had held this thing until it was too close to the
1: I mean again, I, I just don't think that it serves the media well. When we are self-consciously trying to tip the scales of an election, we are trying. Our that look your your determination as a voter, right? Like, let's say it had come out before the election, and there was some evidence that Hunter was corrupt, and maybe even that his father knew more than you know he's he's claimed. Right? Hmm. You would still vote for Biden because you would say they might both be crooks or have you know. Bad things against them, but Biden is, um, you know, what the British call. Uh, by the way, you know, this is not what I'm saying. He is, but you might say that Biden is what the Brits call an ordinary, decent criminal, and Trump is is mm. a unique threat to democracy. And I would sooner take the Hunter Biden, run of the mill, you know, nepotism slash favoritism slash whatever it is to the screaming risk that Trump represents for democracy. That, that's a decision that Sam Harris makes as a voter, right? But from the point of view of editors, I think many editors were, were derelict in their duty. And uh, the test I've always applied, and I've said this to Republicans a million times, I've said, you know, if, if it had been a Republican, let's say it had been Barack Obama or Joe Biden, Who had been accused of sexual assault, the way, credibly accused, the way Gene Carroll credibly accused Donald Trump, right? How would you take it, right? Would you dismiss it? No, you wouldn't. You would take it seriously. So I just think that it's important for the media's credibility, and this goes back to the early part of our conversation, to stick to its lane. We are not trying to tip the scales in an election. We are trying to be fair-minded, thoughtful, but essentially transparent tellers of the news, right? That's, that's, that's our role. Mm. Our role is not to say, you know, yes, 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 but Trump is such a unique threat to democracy that this is one story we're just not going to air because we don't like the timing. If, if we would have done it, if the shoe had been on the other foot, then we have to apply an equivalent standard. If we don't do that, and I think too often much of the mainstream media hasn't done it. It creates a perception of a biased media, and leads to people having more confidence in what Alex, the Alex Joneses of the world, have to say than what the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal have to say. So it, it's the same. In a sense, we're talking about the same thing by, by trying to have a larger role than simply the role of being disseminators of solid, credible information. We harm trust in, in what we do. We harm trust in the concept of expertise and we drive people to the margins of the information economy.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, I get that that risk is, um, it seems to be borne out certainly in, in certain cases. I, I just I worry that, I mean, for me, the, the timing was all there or certainly most of the consideration. And I mean, given the example of Anthony Weiner's laptop and how that was it evaporated as a story right after it had this decisive effect on the election, yeah. it just seemed it just seemed ridiculous to play into Giuliani's gamesmanship at that point. But
1: by the way, I think Trump would still have lost the election. We'll never know, but right. I think Trump would have. Trump was on his way to a to a massive loss, and you might say, could it have tipped a few thousand votes in, in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania? I, I tend to doubt it. People were hmm. had made their determination about his presidency, irrespective of allegations of hmm. hunter shenanigans. Although
0: well, you have some some prominent Republicans walking around saying this what this was how the election was stolen from Trump. It was it wasn't stolen in all the ways Trump claimed it was stolen, it was stolen because we did not give the Hunter Biden laptop story the appropriate hearing in a timely way. And I mean this is what Vivek Ramaswamy is saying, and and perhaps others are saying it, but
1: yeah, pure bullshit.
0: Perhaps we can linger on this point for a, a moment, despite my um, my claim that I uh, wouldn't want to do anything to increase Trump's chances to get reelected. What lessons should we draw from the Hunter Biden laptop at this point? Have you looked at it long enough to know what you think about the possible implications for Biden himself?
1: You know, I don't know. I think the Republicans are drawing inferences that just aren't there as far as i can tell and at the same time the idea that hunter is just a kind of screwed up guy who happens to be the son of the president that seems to undersell the story he was clearly engaged making a living through influence peddling making a very handsome living by the way we're talking you know if what the numbers i've heard are right we're talking you know real money Yeah. And you had a father who, at a minimum, I think, had a responsibility given his role as vice president, given the fact that he was supposed to be the quasi czar when it came to corruption in Ukraine, who was not thoughtful. I think the one thing that can undoubtedly be said about Biden, even if nothing else is demonstrated, is he had a real interest in telling his son, This is not good for the family name. I insist you get out of this. I mean, he clearly has a lot of influence over his son, at least in, in, mm. in, those, in that respect. The New York Times, as a matter of fact, in an editorial, I think in 2015, pointed to the unseemliness of the, of the connection. So, you know, Republicans are busy talking about impeachment. I think we're a long, long way from any talk of that, unless there's smoking gun evidence that Biden knew of and personally benefited from his son's business dealings and kind of trading off the family name. I, I don't see any cause for impeachment, but we should investigate this. And if we don't investigate this thoroughly, then the suspicion ends up lingering that, well, there's gotta be something there. And the news media once again is protecting the Bidens because it hates the Trumps mm-hmm. so very much. And and I don't know who is who's well served by that perception.
0: Well I really wish Biden were not running. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just you know, leaving aside the laptop. We have the obvious actuarial concerns that something might happen to him, you know, right before the election, or you know, or close enough so that basically it will be um, Kamala Harris running in his stead. And then I think we we just hit the the unmovable object of her unelectability. How do you view the 2024 race at the moment? I mean, what, you know, both the Democratic and Republican.
1: So. In election Biden against Trump, of course, I'll vote for, for Biden. I mean, it's a, he believes in democracy, not just in Ukraine, but in the United States too. And mm-hmm. so that's good enough for me. And by the way, his administration has not been the disaster so many people had, had claimed. So I'll, I'll, I'll keep my fingers crossed for his health and, and, and vote for him. I would not be surprised if we have an election in which Biden is not the Democratic nominee. And I have thought that we might have a scenario where RFK does well enough in a primary to seriously spook the Biden campaign and force him out of the race in the way that Gene McCarthy forced, forced LBJ out of the race in 1968 by his very strong showing in New Hampshire that year. In that case, I think the best candidate for the Democrats would be Gretchen Whitmer, successful Mm. second term governor of an important state with, I think, crossover appeal, knows how to speak to a demographic that Democrats are increasingly forgetting about, which is the white working class. Cuts a very, I think, a very appealing figure, not just among Democrats, but Republicans, and I think could win an election. I kept feverishly hoping, and in fact, one of my stupider columns from last November was titled, Trump is finally finished. Mm. And I thought that the disastrous Republican showing in the midterms would really sink him. And I keep hoping against hope that he's not going to be the nominee, whether because he's convicted, indicted, one thing or another, that's a fading hope. I fear that if we should get some kind of recession next year, and hasn't happened so far, but these things inevitably do, that Trump will be in a much stronger position than uh, than we suspect right now. Well, and in well, that case- I think we
0: suspect he's in, a, in an all too strong position. Aren't, isn't he yeah. polling more or less even with Biden at the moment?
1: No, that's right. That's right. But uh, he could be in a position to win, including wing, winning independents who might have sworn to themselves, I'm never going to vote for that guy again. But memories tend to be short in this country. And uh, that to me is a kind of a nightmarish scenario because it really means that something has, has come unglued in in American life, and that we're on the road to Hungary or Argentina or hmm. other depressing places, politically depressing, I should say. Yeah.
0: So, well, well on that point, I, so many people who will, I think, uh, imagine that everything we have said thus far is an expression of of rank partisanship, uh, because certainly everything said against Trump, will believe that the possibility you just alluded to—you know—the the dire consequences of a second Trump term—that will sound like just crazy hyperbole, right? Just like uh, Trump was—you know—for for all of our whinging about him, he was just a—he had completely sensible policies. He didn't get us into any wars. He didn't do much of anything that was scary. He didn't even build the wall, even he, he, as much as he ran on that. The idea that that our democracy is in peril, on a, uh, with a second Trump term, will I mean, you know, admittedly, many of these people will also be people who think that nothing really was in play on January 6. Nothing much happened. That was just a bunch of larping by people who, um, you know, they they it wasn't even nearly as violent as as advertised. But there's just ha- something like half of the country just thinks your last few sentences are just, you know, pure tinfoil hat, crack pottery, uh, as much as they made sense to me. What would you say to kind of shore up the case there?
1: You know, the central conservative truth, and this is not me, but it's Daniel Patrick Moynihan speaking, central conservative truth is that it is culture that shapes politics. The central liberal truth, he went on to say, was that politics can save a culture from itself. But if you take that central conservative truth seriously, which is that the nature of our democracy is ultimately shaped by the habits, values, virtues, institutions that go into the overall character of the American people, then Trump represents the an assault on and the continuous degradation of that culture in a way that would astound conservatives from the era in which I became a conservative, the Reagan years. So I I always said when Trump was president that what worried me was not really the policy. I wasn't worried that he was going to start World War III. He actually— as a lot of conservatives said, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the policy was sort of like run-of-the-mill Republican policy, cut taxes, cut regulation, kill an Iranian general, that kind of thing. It was not out of, out of character with past Republican institutions. But what was out of character was the assault on every facet of American political culture in terms of what our norms are, what our our expectations about the honesty of political office holders, or the probity of their character, or um, their willingness to defend American institutions against their adversaries, just to stick up for the people who worked for him, as, as Trump refused to stick up for uh, his intelligence folks at Helsinki. You know that confront that face off or not a face off that meeting with with Vladimir Putin. Mm. Trump has degraded American political culture like no other president in our history. I'm a, you know I mentioned at the beginning I studied political philosophy in college and one of the philosophers I studied was Edmund Burke. And Burke talks about the importance of manners. He says manners are more important than the laws because ultimately they're what go into making the laws. They're they're really what go into making democratic life. Trump degraded all of that and is going to continue to degrade all that. January 6th, by the way, this this idea that the election was stolen, that you can just make stuff up about the most central aspect of American political life and have half the country believe you that, you know, that all of our officials are lying, that the election was stolen, that portends terribly, terribly for America's future. You know, a lot of political scientists talk about the importance of trust about whether some societies are high-trust societies or low-trust societies. A low-trust society is Lebanon. A low-trust society is Brazil. How are Lebanon and Brazil doing mm. precisely for, for this reason? What, is it, what does it mean for us to live in a political system in which we treat our opponents as mortal enemies? Well, eventually, when you think of it that way, that's how you get to Lebanon, and we're trying to avoid that outcome. So that's how I would answer these conservatives. I'd say that on conservative terms, you should worry about Trump leaving every other consideration behind. If you consider yourself a conservative, whether it's in the tradition of Reagan or 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 Edmund Burke or anyone else I can think of who is an identifiable philosophical conservative, this guy is not it. Mm. You know, to quote Maximus in uh, in the uh, in the Gladiator film, there was a dream that was. Conservatism, and he is not it to paraphrase.
0: Yeah, I like I like the Burkean point. I mean, I've often made it, not knowing that I, I owed a debt to Burke. But under the guise of uh, contrasting laws and norms, right? And and it's just you know the, the norms that Trump violated and will continue to violate. Well, you know, are, can I add
1: one more point, Sam? Yeah. You know, one of the things that Trump, in his reptilian but canny way, did was he appropriated a lot of the themes of the far left and essentially repurposed them for the far right. So, you know, when I grew up, it was typically the lefties who would say, you know, the Constitution was just some document representing the class interests of a bunch of rich white guys, many of them uh, slaveholders. It's, It's a statement not of principles. It's a statement about power. And it's a take it or leave it kind of document. Well, that, that was the very far left when I was growing up. Well, that's kind of Trump's view of the Constitution now. You know, he, he can do whatever he wants with it. If he says that the vice president can, can steal an election, then, then, then so be it. It used to be the far left that said, you know, truth is a construct. There's no such thing as truth. Well, Trump kind of ran with that theme in order to validate his lies and his falsehoods identity politics were a thing kind of primarily associated with, with the left. And he said, well, if there is identity politics on the left, let's talk about white identity politics. So those, those people on the right who detest much of what the left has been saying for 30 or 40 years, the far left, I should, I should emphasize, the far, mm. you know, about the founding, about the moral constitution of truth, about The nature of American citizenship should take a close look at Trump and notice that all of that is there in his candidacy, is there in his persona, is there in what passes for his political philosophy.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, what do you make of the fact that the other Republican candidates, with with a few exceptions, I guess Chris Christie is the clearest exception, feel the need to pander to the lunacy of Trump's cult and, and not acknowledge any of the points you just made. I mean, so you have, you, have, you know, we, I, I've just mentioned Vivek Ramaswamy a, a few minutes ago. I mean, he, he's, a, he's the clearest example for me of of, the, of how abject and insane this behavior appears. I mean, he, the, the, the guy is obviously quite smart, uh, and yet when he starts talking about Trump, this... Despicable pablum just starts pouring out of him, right? And it's and yet he must know exactly what we know about Trump, right? And he and yet he's decided that it's politically fatal to admit it. And, and so I'm just I'm wondering what you, you think about that, and if in fact you think that is just the the Faustian bargain that it, that they're all trying to make because they just know that if you alienate Trump's base. It's just, there's no reason to be running. It's over.
1: Well, I think they're all auditioning to be Trump's vice president or secretary of one thing or another. Mm. It's, it's, as I said about Tucker, it's cynical. It comes from a contempt for any idea of principle or, or, or truth. I mean, it's a weird thing when Mike Pence becomes the, you know, the, the paragon of, of truth-telling in this, in this particular race. And it shows kind of just how reduce the Republican Party as, you know, a lot of my, my new friends on the left insist to me, it was always thus. It was always thus. The, Trump was always the natural destination of what the Republican Party had been since at least, you know, Nixon and the Southern strategy. I, I, I don't buy that. I do not buy that. I was a top member of the Wall Street Journal's editorial page for many, many years. None of us for one second believed that a character like Trump could take over the Republican party the way he did everything he said did was anathema to so much of what we had written and thought of for, for not for years for for decades but whether it was a long time in coming as my as some of my friends say or it really was a kind of a sudden takeover of the party by this uniquely demagogic cult of personality figure the Republican party has just become a party of moral pygmies and i I, I hope that a succession of electoral defeats might create the basis not for a third party, but for a replacement to the Republican Party. The party I'd like to see is a liberal party. That's a party that believes in capitalism and in free speech, but also in individual rights and including the right to choice and in, in, in respecting the autonomy and the intelligence of, of the individual, and you know, there are liberal parties in, in other West European countries that have this combination of a certain kind of social libertarianism and economic conservatism, and are clear-eyed mm-hmm. that we don't live in a, we, we, we live in a world with a lot of predators and we have to uh, deal with them, but that we stand for a concept of a liberal order that centers the individual, his, his rights, her dignity. At the center of that political order, and and is prepared is prepared to champion and defend it.
0: Well, well, then how did it happen? How, how did Trump and Trumpism so quickly subsume almost the entirety of the Republican Party? I mean, how did how did it happen at the you know on the masthead of the of the Wall Street Journal? I mean, how did you how did you see your colleagues get picked off? By this invisible force, because it just it, like it, Trump is. You could you, you could even say, certainly at the time, that Trump wasn't even a Republican, you know, properly conceived. I mean, just in the in the kinds of policies he espoused. I mean, he was just, and and, and no one no one could actually believe that he believed what he claimed he believed. When, you know, when he when he got to talking about you know Christianity or you know he got I forget who interviewed him and you know, it was one of the more delicious interviews in, in, in the history of the world when he was asked what his favorite books of the Bible were. And he, he said, you know, I wouldn't want to say, I wouldn't yeah, want to... Yeah, because
1: he couldn't name a single one. Of but what was
0: absolutely clear is that yeah. he, he literally could not name a single book in the Bible. How did it happen?
1: Look, there are a bunch of theories. And I don't think we can discount the theory that in his weird, bizarre way, there was something to the Trump persona that was very appealing to a certain segment of the Republican base. When, and I think the secret was that he was a guy who didn't back down and didn't apologize. And there was a habit among Republicans that they would be cowed by sort of liberal condemnation. And they would sort of say, oh, mm. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that, et cetera, et cetera. And Trump was the one guy who said, I'm, I'm not doing that, whether it was you know his slurs about McCain. There was, I think to guys like you and me, that's bizarre, but there is a kind of a charisma there to which a lot of people respond. I think you can talk about a few other aspects. Number one, the war on terror, Iraq and Afghanistan, where a lot of military guys or their nephews or brothers or, or sisters or whoever went and fought in wars in which the elites first sent them and then pulled up stakes after the wars had bogged down and become difficult or they decided they were misbegotten. I think that was number 1. Number 2 was the effects of the financial crisis and particularly the way in which the investor class was bailed out by mm-hmm. large infusions of of liquidity into large institutions into people owning stock leaving a lot of people who were just savers really behind. And I think the third aspect was that all but unnoticed to many people was that there was a there was a social revolution in this country in, I would say, beginning from sometime around 2008, 2009, going up to the present. You can call it—I mean, I, the term wokeism, I think, is, is past its sell-by date, but people understand what I mean by it. Mm. Social justice ideology, trans ideology, to some extent, a lot of people still not on board with marriage equality, which, which I have always advocated. And they felt— left behind by a cultural transformation that you know asked them to put their pronouns at the bottom of their emails and and so some combination of these things i think created a sense of rage in a large segment of the r- republican base and and trump presented himself as the funnel for that rage in a way that a guy like jeb bush you know mm. hopeless to do something like that marco rubio hopeless Trump was the rage funnel for those economic, geopolitical, and cultural discontents, and something about the fact that he was a guy who didn't back down, who barked the loudest, made him so much more effective than I would have dreamed of back in 2015.
0: Well, yeah, I I think that's a a great um, X-ray of of those trends, but but it explains what happened to the base. But how do you explain what happened to the elite. Your colleagues. The elite. I'll, I'll in the never Republican forget Party. it.
1: It was so the journal's editorial page was all in on stopping Trump, like when it was clear he was gonna win, when John Kasich was practically the last man standing. Mm. And all of a sudden, Rupert Murdoch sent a tweet that said uh something like if Trump's the nominee would be crazy to oppose him. And mm. I date the sudden, bizarre conversion to that moment in a supposedly independent paper. I kept writing, as you probably recall, I was still at the editorial page, I kept writing one denunciation after another about Trump, why he represented a unique threat, not just to the country, but actually to conservatism as a distinct political, American conservatism as a distinct political philosophy that was worth defending. And I suddenly found myself radically out of step with colleagues, some of whom I'd helped hire, who were with me all the way up until March of 2016. I was like, well, Trump's the same catastrophic horror show. Why, why are we suddenly sympathetic to, to what he represents? Or at least, if not sympathetic, Trump curious. The paper always sort mm. of, the editorial page retained a kind of a, you know, uh, we're better than this, but... We have to kind of go along with it, aspect, or Trump is terrible, but his opponents are that much worse. And I just was not happy with that attitude. I, I, I've, I've always felt, Sam, that if you're a conservative, you have an additional responsibility to call out the fouls on your side, right? It's easy to say, well, Democrats are this, that, and the other. But what takes courage and what takes principle is to say, this conservative is way out of line, or this Republican does not stand for principles that we believe in. And to me, the failure to do that in a clarion way was really an abdication. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't understand what was happening. So I never thought in a million years I would end up at the New York Times for all, those, for all the years I was with the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. But you know, as a uh, As we began this conversation, it's been an era of inversion. So Mm -hmm. that's just another one.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, finally, let's just touch on Trump's legal troubles, such as they are at the moment. Within the last, I think, 72 hours, we have this third case dropping where he's now charged with a conspiracy to defraud the United States, a conspiracy to willfully deprive citizens of the right to vote, and a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. Uh, and, and obstructing of that official proceeding, and in left of center circles, you know, when you when you read the New York Times, for the most part, although I, I just I did read a an article that demurred, however slightly, today. But generally speaking, the enthusiasm for this is is more or less unbounded, and many people seem to think this is the case we've been waiting for. This is all going to be very easy to prove. It uh, neatly. Eludes any claim that uh, he was just practicing his right to free speech in line and line and line again about a stolen election, uh, and that he was certainly free to do that. And uh, it's all just speech all the way down. And this is actually, you know, these are concrete actions that are illegal, and we've got him. But then, when you hear this discussed right of center, uh, recently, I just listened to uh, Megyn Kelly's podcast Mm -hmm. where. All of this was landing in again. It's you know up is down and down is up. This was this is a risible case, and I I like Megan a lot. I mean, Megan is strikes me as you know she's certainly been unusually fair with me when many of many people in her ecosystem have been uh, less so. So she's someone I trust to you know be honest all all the while knowing that her audience is very different than mine, and yet you know, and she's also a lawyer, and she wasn't having any of this, and uh, nor were her guests. So I'm a little worried that at some point we're going to be disillusioned by this case, perhaps not as fully as we were when the Mueller case did absolutely nothing. But how do you view his legal troubles, and how do you view their, their interaction with the, you know, the next uh, year plus of, of a campaign?
1: So I I think that the one truly strong case against him was the documents case, Mm. where to me it just seems open and shut obstruction of justice. Trying willfully to ignore a subpoena and to destroy evidence. I think that's a very strong case. I have doubts about the strength of the current case. You know, I look, on January 6th, that day I wrote a column called Impeach and Convict Right Now and I I think that was the correct remedy, a political remedy to say, and by the way, if, if if, if those pathetic Senate Republicans had garnered the additional, whatever, 15 votes they needed to convict, they wouldn't be faced with this Trumpian nightmare now. They didn't imagine then that Trump would come back stronger than ever. But I'm not convinced from what I've seen of the most recent indictment that Jack Smith can win a case saying Trump knew he was lying, because it's very hard to determine whether someone is lying or simply saying something that's false. Right. Trump may, in his deluded state, may have been perfectly prepared to believe that he had actually won the election and that he had been defrauded and that Mike Pence could have sent you know, uh, votes back to the states or you know, the chosen different slates of electors. All of this turns on the question of, you know, what a person's state of mind is. And people say, well, he was told he lost the election. Well, other people told him he won the election. So I'm not not persuaded, as abhorrent as January 6th was and as abhorrent as the lies about the election are, I'm not persuaded this is the strong case against him, just as I'm not persuaded by the Alvin Bragg case on, you know, the Stormy Daniels payoffs. I think if they're going to get him, it's going to be on obstruction in the case in, in Florida. But, you know, unfortunately, it's very difficult to go to use legal means to stop someone from achieving their political ends, especially at, at this level of politics. I'm, I'm a little disheartened by the last case. I'm a little disheartened that I didn't see Jack Smith come up with anything I hadn't known before that wasn't already in the, in the public record that would have clinched this particular story for me, none of this detracts from one second for one in, in, for one iota from my belief that Trump represents a unique danger to the republic.
0: Who do you think stands a chance of beating him in a primary? Can you imagine some uh, legal insults to his candidacy aside? Is there anyone in the field now, uh, from Desantis on down, who you think stands a chance actually becoming the candidate?
1: I'm going to say something that you're going to immediately dismiss as risible, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, just because I think it's worth considering. I think the only candidate in the race who has a theory that, of how to beat Trump that's credible is Chris Christie, mm. which is to go directly at the guy to point out the obvious fa- flaws and failures, to do so with a kind of rhetorical aplomb and verve that Christie is able to bring to bear from his His wit and his kind of forensic prosecutorial talent. And can he do it? I I doubt it very much, but I think he has the right theory. All these people who are kind of defending Trump, but saying, but I'm a little different, they all look like midgets. They, Hmm. and no disrespect to, to midgets, but they just look like little Lilliputians, I guess, against Trump's Gulliver. And unless you're willing to say, Donald Trump is a disaster for Republicans. He's a loser. He's a proven loser. He was a one time lucky guy who lost the Senate for us in, 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 or the House in 2018 and lost the Senate, the presidency in 2020 and lost the Senate in 2022. And he's going to lose the White House again in 2024. And he doesn't represent conservative values at all, which is what Christie's doing. Mm. No one's going to defeat him. Now, Maybe it would be someone other than Christie. Maybe someone not, you know, weighed down by some political baggage, Bridgegate or whatever. But I don't see anyone doing it any other way. If that's if that Mm. is coherent.
0: What do you think would happen to the Republican Party if Christie or someone like him prevailed, and Trump was actually, you know, in the rearview mirror permanently as a presidential candidate? Do you think? The, the vapors of Trumpism and QAnon and everything else would burn off and we would be returned to a, a more normal, recognizable Republican Party where all of a sudden everyone would start to resemble Mitt Romney?
1: Mitt Romney was a bad candidate because he represented or appeared to represent a certain kind of to the manner born side mm-hmm. of the Republican Party that isn't all that attractive. The Republican Party at its best is a party of striving and aspiration. It's the party of the small business person who wants to grow his business but is hampered by stupid regulations. It's the party of a mother who's trying to get a good edu- a single mom who's trying to get a good education for her child is depressed by the quality of public schools and would like some alternatives, charter schools even religious schools, but isn't, isn't able to get it because of the lock of public sector unions. That's, that's what the Republican Party can be at its best. By the way, a party that's open to immigration because it recognizes that in immigrants, there is a unique source of energy and ambition and renewal that, that's the secret sauce of America's growth and, and of its promise. We're, we're a ways away from that party. But if, if you had a candidate who spoke for those ideals and did so with some authenticity and some charisma, you could have a great party again. I just, I just am not seeing how we return to that, to that point. And, and by the way, it has to be a party that supports the bedrock ideals of the republic, of our democracy, of our system of of a rule of law that we recognize and respect and to which all of us is accountable.
0: Mm. I'm just wondering whether the transition is conceivably one where no one really has to acknowledge how crazy that was when we we republicans decided that the, that the most basic norms of our democracy didn't matter and you know having a president who wouldn't commit to a peaceful transfer of power was just good clean fun uh, whether all of that could just sort of get memory hold and everyone begins to start behaving normally again or if there has to be some you know truth and reconciliation bottleneck to this you know this yeah. some kind of exorcism performed on the on what has happened
1: i mean in in politics as they really are i doubt that would ever happen because you would be pissing off tens of millions of Trump voters who you would need as part of a coalition. But at some point in the future, if the Republican Party is going to be morally viable, let's leave politics aside, but morally viable, you're going to need a Republican leader who stands up and dissociates the party and its brand and its name from Trumpism and what Trump did, just as Democrats Dissociated themselves from their legacy of segregationism and and mm. the other you know unsavory and despicable elements of their past.
0: Mm. That's a good point. Well, Brett, it's great to get you here on the podcast. Uh, thank you. Oh, for, can I say uh, one more thing? Yeah, yeah, go for it.
1: After the twenty twenty election, you sent me a handwritten note. I forgot when it came, but for some mm. reason, it came at a moment of I don't want to say a dark moment, but a depressing moment in my life. And uh, it gave me such solace. It, it just was a note out of the blue of, you and I have, I don't think we've ever met in person, but-, but here yeah, We came... met
0: once at a, um, that dialogue conference, Oh, I right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we met at yeah.
1: this one time and you sent me this lovely handwritten note. And I can't tell you how meaningful that was and how, what a generous, you probably don't even remember it, but it was a. It was a generous, spontaneous act of menschiness, if I can use mm. that word, that made a real difference in my life. And so if I can publicly thank you for that, I, I really want to, because it, it said something about you that goes beyond who you are as a public figure and said something about who you are as a, as a human being. And, and it meant a great deal to me, and I thank you.
0: Oh, nice, nice. Well, if, if I can double down on the menschiness, I think I actually owe you a public apology. I can't remember if, I mean, I certainly, I, I gave you a private apology, but I can't remember if any any of our difference of opinion was, was spilled out into public. I must have said something on Twitter. Uh, I'm, in fact, I'm, I'm reasonably sure I did. So, so it's appropriate that it be public. But, you know, early on, you really went after Elon as a, you know, explicitly as a Trumpian figure. Yeah. And, you know, I was, you know, friends with Elon. And, um, you also went after Tesla as a company, and you know whether you know I, I'm I'm less sure that your your prognostication of on that point is going to be borne out. You know, Tesla, you know, I think you were you were expecting it to go bankrupt, and remains to be seen. But um, you know, even if Tesla succeeds, as I expected it to at the time, you know, I push back rather hard against your defamation of Elon. But I, I just I must say that that uh, and it's uncomfortable as a Former friend, to be saying this, you were you were seeing him better than I was at that point, and
1: and and you were seeing Tesla better than I did. So so we're each half right. Well, uh, in you. any
0: case, sorry to have uh, gotten up in your grill over that because uh, you know you were seeing something I wasn't.
1: Well, well, thank you for that. But you were, I think, you were probably more right about Tesla than I was. So uh, so we'll split the difference. All right, but, but nice. uh, I I really appreciate the interview.
0: Yeah. Well, to be continued. It's going to be a uh, I, I think. As annoying as it will be, it's unlikely to be boring over the next uh, 18 months. So we'll, we'll have occasion to talk again.
1: Sam, thanks a million.